If you've ever tried to defend your faith, or more specifically, the authenticity of Scripture as the Word of God, one of the challenges you've likely heard is that there are inconsistencies in the Bible. But could it be that by pointing this out, your challenger is actually proving your point for you? Welcome to Episode 32 of What We Believe and Why with pastor, author, and teacher Dr. George Byron Koch. When we say that the Bible is written by God, we expect continuity throughout. We still expect this when considering that humans were used via inspiration to do the actual writing. But could it be that the inconsistencies actually help us? We're continuing our discussion of biblical authority today. Here's George. So we've been dealing with the reliability of the biblical manuscripts. How do we know that what we have is what the authors actually wrote? Last time we dealt with that in terms of the accuracy of the copies of the documents that we have. And now I want to look at another interesting reason why we believe that what we have is what the authors wrote. And that is the inconsistencies in Scripture. Now, this is going to sound funny as I first say it, but follow me on this logic. The evidence that what we have is what they wrote is the Bible's inconsistency. That is, the same event is described by different authors in different ways. In some cases, there seems to be an explanation that helps us make sense. In others, not so. For instance, in Matthew 15, 38, it says Jesus fed 4,000 men plus women and children with seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. But Mark 6, 41 says Jesus fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. So, which is it? This one is particularly easy to clear up because in Mark 8, The disciples are thinking about food, and Jesus asks them, starting in verse 18, You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? What about the 5,000 men I fed with five loaves of bread? How many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? Twelve, they said. And when I fed 4,000 with seven loaves? How many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Jesus himself said he did both. These two reports are of different events. It's not a discrepancy. Thank you, Mark. But there are some other places that aren't quite as simple. Here's an example. Matthew 28 on Easter Day. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. But in Luke 24, 1-4, it says this, But very early on Sunday morning the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in. But they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. So, wait a minute. Where is the angel sitting on the stone? 
In this telling, the stone had already been rolled aside. Who was it who went there? Matthew says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Luke says the women who went to the tomb were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several others. And how about this, the Gospel of John, chapter 20? Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. Now, add to this that all of these stories have Jesus encountering different individuals in different places near the tomb or the road to Emmaus or Galilee for different reasons and at different times, all immediately post-resurrection. Just read through each of the accounts in the Gospels and you'll see how these disagree. Some have tried to argue that each detail did happen exactly as reported and that they are all consistent parts of a single greater whole. Well, maybe, though no one has been able to construct such a meta-story that made sense out of the smaller stories. Many have tried, but reading through them, one gets the sense that they are trying too hard. Better just to leave it unexplained, as the early church did. Countless other conflicts and contradictions exist, and also many instances of believers behaving badly. Partisan spirit, how about this? Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Or what about infighting among the leaders? When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul there is criticizing Peter. He's the writer in both of these quotes, and he's presenting his own point of view. But in both cases, he reveals struggle in the young church. In the first instance, church members are taking sides and acting as partisans for one top leader or another, Paul or Apollos or Peter. In the second instance, Paul accuses Peter of hypocrisy for acting one way among Gentiles and another way among Jews. This is, of course, the same Paul who said, When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ." 
This is the same Paul who argued so vehemently against circumcision and also circumcised Timothy. So, why does inconsistency or bad behavior, such as we've witnessed here, give us confidence in the reliability of what we read? Because Scripture doesn't try to pretty up things by rendering as consistent all of the accounts that are told, or by hiding the flaws of the people it describes. It's all there in gritty, authentic realism. If you really wanted to take something and make sure it was exactly the same all the way through so everybody would believe it is perfect and a complete gift from the Holy Spirit without error, consistent and infallible, would you let this stuff through? The church from the earliest time has been aware of these inconsistencies, but it has also been honest enough about its regard for Scripture not to disguise or hide these things. It has wrestled with them, yes, but it has been authentic about what was written. The bottom line on this is that nobody copy-edited these documents to force consistency on them. What we have today is probably what was written then by the original authors with some possible minor copying errors that crept in over the years. I don't know which of these stories of the resurrection is the most accurate telling. Perhaps in eternity I will discover that the event as it unfolded actually included all of those parts, but in some way that I can't really perceive right now because I am at such a distance from it. It's possible that one of the writers of Scripture remembered it wrong or heard the story from someone who remembered it wrong. Well, it is a common human experience that several people at the same event will remember it differently and not all will accurately recall it. That may be what's at play here, though some theologians would find that this is an impossible explanation. They believe the Holy Spirit caused the authors of Scripture to write, and thus God kept their original writing infallibly accurate, perfectly controlling each thought, each choice of a word, and each stroke of the pen. Such theologians might accept that copying errors crept in, but would assert that when the words were first written down, such documents are called original autographs, no error was present or possible because the Holy Spirit was completely in control. The author was a mere instrument in the Holy Spirit's hand, like a pen. Others will grant that there could be human error or misunderstanding present, even in the original autographs. But in matters of faith and morals, the scripture is inerrant, without error. We'll come back to this in just a minute. Thanks, George. We'll be back with more after this quick break. 